Welcome to McKinsey Israel on High Tech, featuring discussions on technology, business, and management. This podcast is brought to you by McKinsey Israel Tech Hub, where we help tech companies and startups realize their full potential. Hi everyone, I'm Peleg Dekalo, a consultant in McKinsey Israel and the host of our podcast, McKinsey Israel on High Tech. Traditional medical care is being revolutionized before our eyes. Ever since COVID is an integral part of our day-to-day lives, digitization in healthcare has been unprecedented. Trends like remote care and monitoring have been proving themselves as extremely useful and efficient. Today, we will explore the biggest trends in digital health and how healthcare might look like in five years' time. Also, we will look into the unique challenges health tech companies are facing, from regulation to the intriguing topic of AI bias. Before introducing our guests, let's start with a quick warm-up question. If you had to give the Nobel Prize to someone within digital health, David, who would that be and why? I think probably the person that wrote the first paper on PPG in 1937. For me, my Nobel Prize winner is the person that started with PPG, photopolistomography, 1937, first paper. You know, back then, most people still didn't have a working light at home, and he yeah. already wrote about PPG. So that's fascinating in my uh, t- Tell us about this article. What, what is PPG? So PPG, photopolistomography, means that I'll start with a very simple explanation, that our skin surface... If we take a look and monitor exactly on the tiny changes that are happening to our skin, any part of the body's skin, by the way, that provide us an indication that we can actually generate the signal that help us to tr- transform it to heart rate, to other types of vital signs, to endless amount of information that actually exists on our skin surface. Before that, we needed to put some very serious sensors and monitor on our chest and get a lot of information, sometimes from our head, in order to get the most basic vital signs. So when PPG and then it evolved to RPPG, remote photopolistomography, which actually changes this revolution that uh, medical devices can be used at home. Gila, the bar is high. <laughs> right? We're at the cusp of uh, digital health. So it's a little early to find out who um, are the people who deserve a Nobel Prize, right? I think for me, there are two, two things that stand out. One, there is a person that stand out to me, and it's uh, Joy Buemlamni who's doing work at MIT. She's a PhD candidate in, um, at MIT, and she's doing so much work on um, algorithmic justice. She also has a nonprofit organization. Her work has actually prompted IBM, Amazon, Microsoft to think through, um, to pause um, what they're doing around um, facial recognition because she showed them that the algorithms were actually biased for people of colors. And while she's not working on digital health, I think a lot of the work that she's doing on um, raising awareness for the biases that are into the AI are going to help with digital health um, and healthcare in general. We still have algorithms um, that are discriminating against certain population because they're not based on um, you know data or real-world data. The um, other thing that excites me a lot with digital health innovation is the fact that we have a lot of reverse innovation happening. What we're seeing with digital health is that the 
innovation is coming from the areas that have the biggest need. They're trying to solve an issue, right? Issue of access, issue of unmet needs that don't interest everybody. And so we have innovation coming out of the Southern Hemisphere for the first time, right? Out of Africa, out of India. And this innovation, then we realize, hey, we have so many, so much um, you know, so many areas, even within the U.S., that have the same issues because they're remote, because they're rural, and we don't have um, as much access. And I think we're going to see much more of that coming up. I think just something to support what Gila is just saying. You know, we live in a Western world, and we used to that. But you just take a flight out of Israel for 30 minutes flight or 60 minutes flight. You get to countries that you have one physician for every 10,000 people. One physician for every 20,000 people. And, and I want to talk something like real serious. Papua New Guinea, 14.9 million people population. The entire country, 463 physicians. That's it. One for every 35,000 people. That, that's unbelievable. Okay, so Gila is right. Those countries, by the way, understand that they didn't have those 10 years of research for a new product. And the capabilities of the cloud infrastructure, the AI capabilities today, allows them to actually to catch up very fast. And that's what's happening, you know, in Latin America, in India, in a lot of countries that are way beyond. They will actually start producing very interesting stuff. And now introductions, a little bit late, but let's do it. Uh, David, you go first. You're the guest. My name is David Maman. I'm the, uh, the, the husband of Mirit, the father of Alma. I'm, uh, I'm living in the center of Israel. I'm currently the, the founder, CEO, and CTO of Binayai, a very interesting company. And a few words about myself. I guess I started pretty early. I graduated my master's degree in computer science and applied mathematics at the age of 18. I've been always into technology, like hardcore, low-level technology, and not on a specific subject because uh, this is actually the 13th startup that I've co-founded, and uh, eight of them were in cybersecurity, which is definitely my comfort zone, but I love everything, from water saving to greed processing to healthcare, of course, uh, to uh, everything. I'm just a real technology junkie. Gila, tell us about yourself, please, and about your role in McKinsey today. Sure, so I'm Gila Tolub. I'm a partner in the Tel Aviv office. I have um, I made Aliyah about six years ago. I'm originally from France, as some of you may hear from my accent. No way. <laughs> but I've spent 12 years in the U.S. I really love to do work that has an impact on others. And so after my MBA at the University of Chicago, I joined McKinsey in the spirit. Um, and um, when you join McKinsey, they ask you all the time, what is your passion? What is your passion? Um, and, you know, what is your purpose? What do you want to do? And I said, you know, I, I want to help companies that are doing more um, than just bringing new products. I want to help companies not just making more money. I want to help them because there's something more than that. And very quickly, I went into healthcare. And so things, uh, you know, I served hospitals, I served pharmacy chains, I served pharma companies, med device companies, started to work in uh, vaccines way before it was sexy when people were asking me, why are you doing something that is so niche? Not, nobody has ever said something like that since 2020. Yeah, uh, <laughs> definitely. But then, you know, um, uh, Corona happened and I, um, I started to, uh, you know, instead of traveling, going to all my clients all around the world, I was um, based in Israel and I said, you know, this is maybe a gift in disguise because there is so much innovation happening here in Israel. And so I'm leading the healthcare um, vertical of our high tech hub in Israel, where we're trying to see how we can help uh, startups accelerate uh, the, 
pace of innovation. Um, and so whether it is getting it right or whether it is getting it done faster, what can we do so that this innovation gets to market? And, you know, I think our purpose is twofold, bringing the best of the world to Israel and bringing the best of Israeli innovation to the rest of the world. That's how I view my role. So now you've been exposed to a lot of the innovation and trends that are happening in digital health. Walk us through what are the biggest trends right now that are happening in, in, in this realm? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, one big thing, uh, especially after Corona, is we realized a lot of the care is going to be pushed out of the hospitals. During Corona, nobody wanted to go to the hospital. And you know that it's the worst place to be. But you know what? It was like this before Corona. Actually, no one should want to be in a hospital. Um, Hospital-acquired infection are a real thing. Um, and you want to be at home as much as possible. And I think because of what happened with uh, COVID-19, we're seeing more and more of the innovation that was existing on remote monitoring, right? Um, being uh, talked about, being adopted much faster than before. You have companies who were around from the early 2000s And it was so slow. The adoption was so slow. And the doctors were like, nobody's ever going to be able to do remote care. People still want to come to me. People want to talk to me. And then suddenly they had that option during Corona. It was great. And they liked it better. And the patients liked it as well. And so now we're seeing this huge adoption on remote monitoring. And I don't think we're going back. I mean, I think we're going to get a hybrid uh, kind of care, right? Where we're going to have some of those things um, remote and some of... The in-person is never going to go away, right? Uh, but I think this is going to be a huge shift. How do you prepare for that? I think people are now only starting to get together to think about healthcare of the future, which is the theme of this, uh, of this uh, podcast. Um, but it's really thinking about how do you create a connected environment? So I think technology is a huge enabler. Um, there's a, a lot of questions around data privacy. So how do you create... Uh, synthetic data, for example. We have some innovation coming out of Israel to do that. How do you connect uh, different hospitals, different uh, people at home? How do you monitor them? Um, so a lot of uh, technology enablement, but I don't think anyone is fully thinking about it yet, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Indeed, interesting things to come. David, how do you see healthcare in five years from now, from now and also digital health? What should we expect? So... Definitely, I think that the uh, healthcare industry is one of the key industries that were left behind in the digital transformation. And no doubt, I completely agree with Gila that COVID-19 have pushed health 10 years forward, easily. And, and you know, I, I talked with companies that started in the late 90s and didn't move anywhere, not in sales, not in product definition. And suddenly with COVID, now they're, you know, they're new unicorns. And the, the, the offering proposition that COVID-19 started requiring, it's not just about remote care. It's actually about having a self-control and a self-availability for healthcare services anywhere. And, you know, if, if in the past, uh, we, we really used to completely separate between healthcare and wellness, And everything about wellness was nice if you're training, if you're doing some sports, if you're going to the gym, but healthcare, no, no, no. You have to see the physician for that. No, it doesn't work like that. Everything now is combining. The well-being industry is actually double the size from healthcare industry today, which is unbelievable. So I think due to the available technology, not only that Binar are doing, you know, a lot of companies are working on making things available anywhere, 
I think that healthcare is going to be dramatically personalized. And what do I mean by that? Today, when we take a pill, the pill was designed to support the, the, the commodity, which means like the majority of the population. But there are no personalized healthcare solution unless you have a lot of money. So I know this physician that started a practice that if you have half a million dollars, I'm not kidding, half a million dollars, and you have cancer, is 25 scientists will work with you for six months and will build you a treatment with over 99% success criteria. That's unbelievable, which means cancer is treatable. So personalized health is going to go very, very deep up to cancer treatment and, and you know rare diseases treatment. But on the other hand, I think that personal he personalized help is going to be at the wrist of your hand. And to, many of us have multiple type of smartwatches, but you know, l let's talk practicality. There are countries that doesn't have a sewer system, but everyone have a smartphone. And those are the key players in Africa, in Latin America, in, in you know, rural area in China. And when you have so much information that can be actually generated on a daily basis, actually on an hourly basis, when you have so much data, personalized health will go forward. And not only from smartphone, for wearable inf devices. And with those tech uh, advancements, personalized health will come in a cheaper cost, will be more accessible to more and more people. Completely. It's about like changing the mindset so that we can move into this precision medicine, you know, area. I think what we're seeing is a lot of patient empowerment. Right. This, the, the data that's out there, the fact that, you know, we laugh that people go on Dr. Google before they see their doctor. But the point is, they're just much more involved. Right. And they want to learn. It's actually great that people want to know more about their health. And what we're seeing in the data is that 80 percent of people actually engage on social media about their health. So whether it is in platforms like Patient Like Me or, you know, in Europe, in France, it's Doctissimo, all of those uh, forums where you ask questions about health or you talk to people who have something similar than you have, 80% of people do that already today. One more thing about this specific, because we're talking about what's going to be the, you know, where we're going to be in five years or less. So what, what we've been able to see in Bina, now we have a lot of major insurance companies that are customers of us, of ours, of Bina. And when we talk with them, we see the amount of money that they're spending now on wellness. And they're actually enabling their customers to have wellness monitoring capabilities. That's why they bought Bina as well. But why it's so interesting, and I, and I truly asked an insurance company, why are you spending so much money and you're willing to go with this path to enable your customers? They said, on every dollar that we will spend on wellness, we will save four and a half dollars on claims within the next five years. And what, what makes you think that the organization that's going to make the world a healthier place are actually insurance companies. And it relates to the integration of wellness and, uh, and healthcare that you spoke about. That's one of the integrations that we see that is happening in real time now, yes? Gila, mm -hmm. you said that in your capacity, you help both, uh, both players, I would say, incumbent players, healthcare uh, giants, and also insurance players that are in digital health, and also startups that are in the field of the dig digital health. What is the difference in how we serve them? What are the main challenges that each encounter? You really need to think about um, the culture that they're, you know, that of the organization, and think about how do you make it more prone to innovation. And when we look at what is a more innovative company? Usually it's about patient centricity. Um, so really being clear that it's not about selling your own product, but it's about solving problems for the patient. 
It's about uh, breaking silos uh, because those big organizations very often have different, um, you know, business units doing different things. But when you're trying to solve a problem for a patient, you need to all work together to get there. The other thing is obviously, you know, then being more agile, right? So this idea that, you know, startups know you have to fail fast. Um, but large organizations don't have the mindset of let's try things quickly and then let's fail fast. And so it's it's also something that we work a lot on with large organizations, especially hard, I think, in healthcare, uh, because you have a lot of people that are PhDs and who are used to testing things for a very long time. The other reason is, I mean, very simple to understand. You have people's lives in your hand, right? So you do want to be a little bit more cautious than just, you know, let's test and see where it goes. Now on the startup side, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. It's the opposite, right? I mean, they know um, they're, they're moving really fast. They're trying new things. Um, but sometimes they like focus. They want to do a lot of different things. They want to go after many different business uh, problems. They find, you know, they found one um, new, they found an innovative way of doing something and they're like, okay, but this could help payers this way. They could ha- this could help the provider that way. Uh, I could even go help pharma companies with their clinical trials and, you know, so many different things you could do. But, you know, then you're actually not going deep enough into one area. As, as a young entrepreneur, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I didn't know that strategy is, first of all, to know what not to do. You know, because as an entrepreneur, you always try to keep the doors open. You want to do that and that. Oh, yes, and I can supplement this specific vector. No, first of all, know what you don't do. Exactly. And I agree with you. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we help startups with. We help them think through what are their options, but also what should they be focusing on to make sure they, um, um, you know, increase their probability of success in those areas. It's not always easy. Sometimes, you know, it's about bringing a little bit of the human side of things, right? It's not only about the numbers. The simplification of it, it sounds like for the for the giants, we are kind of digital experts. And for the startups, we're kind of business and management experts. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And I think one of the big roles that we play is actually making the link between those. So actually introducing... Um, you know, a lot of time we have uh, large clients who say, hey, I'm looking for the latest innovation in skincare, um, you know, and, and you were able to tell them, well, look, there's those five startups that are doing very cool things, you know, you should uh, look into what they're doing and, um, and then we can even uh, make introductions if that, if that helps them. Most of the healthcare inefficiencies occur at those intersection points. I think if all the players knew how to work together better, we would um, have way less inefficiencies, right? Mm -hmm. David, as you said, you have a lot of experience in a lot of different fields within the tech sector as an entrepreneur. Give us a taste on what what are the unique challenges that you face with a digital health company as opposed to a cybersecurity company or a web company? So I think that, first of all, let's talk about the positive things. If we were like 10 or 15 years ago, there were really, really niche investment companies that used to invest in healthcare startups. You know, back then, no one used the definition digital health. It was hardcore health because you, need, uh, you needed back then a lot of time in order to generate value. And it goes without saying that no one would have ever touched any product without the medical approval, without all the full clinical work. And that's why those companies, until they started selling a product, it would be 10 to 12 years. 
And usually investment company, when we're talking about tech and technology in general, you know, want to see a much better return, you know, like a few years to, to have a, a serious mature product in the market. And a lot of the new technologies have actually helped to gap this barrier, to, to close the gap. There's a lot of data, health data. So the great thing is that we have unlimited power today, processing power. The cloud supports everything today. There are no limitations to data management, data processing, data analysis, uh, and also architectures that can generate you value from the data. But I think that, you know, a lot of companies chose during the past probably 10 or 15 years when they started working on healthcare, they said, no, no, we are wellness. We do not need a medical approval. We do not need regulation approval, but this is changing now. Even wellness companies will have to support the FDA requirements, whether it's about accuracy, whether it's about compliance, about regulation, about processes, about EQMS systems. So I think that those worlds of wellness and healthcare, we're just going to have another grade in FDA. That's what, how I see it's happening. So I think that the, the, the regulation is a huge part of challenges. Yeah, regulation and compliance, definitely unique to health tech. Second challenge is the data that you can actually use. So let's separate the type of companies in digital health or in healthcare to three different types. There's a company that used current available data and they do sort of a data mining, sort of a, an AI-based insight. Eventually they're analyzing the data and they can give you very interesting insight. The second part of companies are actually utilizing current medical devices data. Basically they're taking radiology images and they are getting the insight. Whether you have an hemorrhage in your brain, whether you have a broken uh, knee, they are knowing to analyze medical imaging. Medical imaging is not the only piece of data that companies analyze, of course, but they're using data. And they're the third party that actually generate their own, uh, let's call it, sensor data. You know, and each and every sensor data have its own challenges, uh, its own sampling rate, its own, which means you have to generate your own data. And generating your own health data throughout the process of Helsinki approvals and throughout the process of having enough subject for each and every data generation, it's a very expensive and annoying process. In order to have enough information, you have to get not just to record people, you have to get the ground truth, which means you need subject with specific observation and specific health issues so you can generate this kind of uh, healthcare. You know, we just released our blood pressure as part of Bina Solution. It was six months process just to get access to sick people, you know, very hypertensive or hypotensive, uh, very high blood pressure or very low blood pressure so we can actually record them with a medical grade, uh, let's call it ground truth device so you can actually have the data. But if I understand correctly, it's not due to privacy reasons. It's just also that, that, that it's, it's it's not out there. It's the, also this, the, the data that you're yeah, after. By the way, you even, need to create it. Exactly. Even if it's out there, it's not according to the devices that you're actually using. You know, we've been exposed to dozens of data sets of people connected to PPG devices. The data is worthless for us. We couldn't even get one insight and actually optimize it to help ourselves in any way. We needed to create everything from scratch. So fortunately, where uh, there is an aspiration to advance towards health equity by companies, by people, by systems, and the, the, this issue is getting bigger and bigger, especially now when uh, the pandemic hit. And with that being said, plenty of the dig digital health solutions are reliant upon 
um, artificial intelligence algorithms that might be biased for, I think, two main reasons, right? Um, first of all, the sample that people might use to teach the machine um, are not a true representation of the population that is being measured. The other uh, reason might be that the mathematical relations inside that algorithm are not accurate um, and are not a true representation of the objective truth, so to speak. And there is the concern that relying on those biased algorithms will perpetuate um, health inequity. So, Gila, you mind telling us about that really fascinating issue? Humans are by definition biased, right? I mean, we, we have so much information going through our brain. If we were not biased, we would die out of too much information, right? We wouldn't know what to do with it. So we need to have uh, biases to actually help us get some order in our brain, right? It's, it's meant to protect us and to help us make decisions or else we would all be paralyzed by the amount of information that we're faced with and we wouldn't be able to move forward. But because we have our biases and it allows us to um, identify, you know, is this a person I should trust, person I shouldn't trust, right? Um, then we make better decisions. Now, the problem is we are biased. And so we are perpetrating those biases when we build um, new solutions. The first step is just to realize that it happens. Uh, you don't have to beat yourself up and, you know, over it. But you just have to make sure that your organization is set up in a way that the culture recognizes that there are biases and then puts in place ways to um, fight them, ways to... You know, whether it's somebody who's going to be devil's advocate at every meeting and remind you of, you know, this is, you might be using this, you might be saying this because of a bias, right? Or whether it is, you know, making sure to have some external organization review your algorithms, right? Just recognizing that you are, in a sense, biased by definition. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I'm way more worried about people that tell me, oh, I'm not biased. Like that, sure. that actually doesn't exist, right? You wouldn't be alive if you were not biased. Awareness here is So key. let me give you an example. You have some AI in healthcare that are trained based on what doctors have done in the past. You have some algorithms that are trained based on Journal of New England best practices. Which one is less biased? Well, the Journal of New England is the best practices that are published based on their research, right? What the doctors have been doing the last 10 years is also full of biases because they're practicing medicine, hopefully through the lens of best practices, but also based on who they have in front of them. And so actually by training algorithms only based on what doctors have been doing, you're putting in more human you know, biases inside of your algorithm than if you were going back straight back to what are the best practices, what, how should you treat that patient, not how have you treated that patient before. Gila, do you think if it's even possible to get something that is non-biased? No. I'm not sure. Uh, but you, probably not, but yeah. you can work to make sure that the biases are not hurting people. Yeah, probably, but it will never get to a perfect place. It will never ever. get to a perfect place. It will get to a better place. Yeah, so basically to break down the problem into first principles as much as possible and to, and to really check your premises. Exactly. So, for example, we have a few things that we do with companies around uh, patient centricity or around uh, we actually have a workshop that we do on on um, on inclusion and diversity. Right. Where we just take a patient centric approach or, you know, look at a product and say, hey, where could biases enter this product? Right. 
very open-minded. You do it in a workshop way with your employees, 30 people, whatever it is, and say, hey, what do you guys think? And then you go one by one, right? It's an hour and a half workshop. And then you think through where it could get in and what are ways that we could mitigate it. You're raising awareness. Also, you're putting, you're giving a message to all your employees that this is important to you and that this is something that everybody should be on the lookout for. And then can we fix it 100%? I don't know. But even if we can fix it 50%, that would be a huge win, right? For sure. Minimizing the, the damage that's being can caused. Can be done. Yeah. yeah. David, Gila, it was a pleasure. That's it? Wait. Yes. It was fascinating. Something AI? Come on. We did it that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Thank you very it much for having me. It was a fascinating conversation, really. Thank well, you thank so you much for, for joining. Us. For of sure. Course. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to McKinsey Israel on High Tech. Subscribe to our podcast and feel free to contact us at israelpodcast at mckinsey.com to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions.